0: Alright, let's get started everybody. How are you today? <clears throat> good to see you too. Always good to see you. So if you join us, I'm proud of you guys. You, you ate your vegetables. Go <laughs> to a steakhouse and there's more beef and rice, but the vegetables are gone. That's excellent. Your, your moms would all be so proud of you. <laughs> So, we're going to get started, we're going to jump back into Deuteronomy 22, but I want to make just a few reminders, because we do have some folks that are here, um, either for the first time or, or haven't been in a while, but just to let you know, we do this every week, the food is free, uh, Roots Chris graciously provides the place and the food, um, this bucket here is tips, and this goes to the kitchen staff, so we ask that you would just donate what you're able might pay for a normal meal, um, throw it in there because it goes straight to them as a way of saying thank you. Uh,
1: If you want to let people know about this Bible study, so I have a couple of uh, cards that have a link
0: to the podcast and the video, so we record each week, which is why I have the mic and the camera here,
1: and so people that missed it can catch up on it, and they can also go back and watch
0: all the way back to Exodus. So all of Exodus, all of Leviticus, all of Numbers, and most of Deuteronomy now are now up on the website. So it's all free, and uh, the cards are here. Take them, give them out, let people know about it. And it's so much is free, but we kind of need help to keep it going, and that happens through people who support the ministry of Disciple Dojo, which is my teaching ministry. And the best way that you could do that is if you actually go to our website, DiscipleDojo.org, and there's only here a video library, hours and hours and hours of free teaching, audio, um, blog articles, books, that have been re- all this stuff. And it's all free. We would ask if you benefited by this, you just click on the donate button at the top of the page, and it'll take you to a place where you can either give a one-time donation, or you can, what's really helpful, you can sign up to become a monthly donor.
1: And you go to a karate dojo and you
0: earn belts. Well, a disciple dojo, you can earn your belt as well, you don't really earn your belt. But... You can become, say, a white belt donor, and that's $10 a month. You can be a black belt donor, that's $100 a month, and there's belts in between. And that's just a way of you being able to say, hey, you know, I don't have a ton of money, but I have a little bit, and I can give because I believe what's going on. And I'm blessed by this study, or these resources, or the videos, or whatever. Um, so take a look at that, and you know, nobody likes asking for money, but the reality is that we're a small nonprofit. It's all tax-deductible. So you will get a receipt at the end of the year, and you can write it off. But we do rely particularly on those monthly donors. Even even $10 a month is huge uh, to keep this ministry and the other ministry that we do with refugees here in Charlotte going as well. So check out the website. Hop on there if you have any questions. um, Shoot me an email. I'd I'd be happy to answer and happy to talk to you more. But let's get to what you're here for in addition to the food, which is our study of Deuteronomy. We're in chapter 22, last week, chapter 21, The section of Deuteronomy, to recap real quick, for those of you that haven't been here the whole time, Moses giving his last address to his people, Israel, they are the children of the previous generation who came out of Exodus. The previous generation, God freed them, he redeemed them, he saved them, all this language we use in the New Testament comes from the Old Testament, God saved them, and then they rebelled and turned away from God, and so they perished without entering into the salvation that God had achieved for them, which was their entry into the land. And so they died in the desert because of their disobedience. Well, their children, God said, your children will enter the land. Um, And so Moses wants their children to live in the land and to inherit all of the blessings that their parents should have inherited, but didn't because of their disobedience. So he's speaking to Israel, and he's recapping the major themes of the covenant that their parents made back when God brought them out of Egypt and brought them to Mount Sinai. They entered into a suzerainty, vassal treaty covenant. This is a known way in the ancient world of a greater power, entering into a relationship with a lesser power, and there were obligations and stipulations on both ends. So it's like a modern contract uh, in, in some sense. And so the stipulations were the ways that the people of the covenant would live as people of the covenant under the great suzerain, the great king. So Moses now has been recapping all of these things, and Deuteronomy itself follows the form, literally, of the structure of an ancient Near East Hittite treaty covenant. So we know this because we have other examples of ancient Near
1: East Hittite treaty covenants, and we see that Deuteronomy
0: follows the same structure. So the part that we're in right now, which is the bulk of Deuteronomy, the middle of the book, is the part where it's laying out the stipulations that the suzerain is giving to the vassals to live by. So Moses is doing that, but he's also doing it in a way that combines it with preaching. He's preaching this law. He's not just giving the law. The law was given as law in Exodus and Leviticus. Now the law is being reasserted and it's being preached. So there's more of an emotional, there's more pathos, there's more feeling to what he's doing. There's also more of a summary. Some of the laws that have already been dealt with in general, or in particular in Exodus, don't get a major re-emphasis. They just get... Kind of a reminder. So it's not the second law, which is literally what the book of Deuteronomy means, but rather it's a second emphasis of the law. And it's giving Israel a chance, this new generation, which they will do at the end of the book, to, re- to uh, renew the covenant, to re-sign the contract, so to speak, with their own signature rather than their parents. So in this section that we're in, he's been laying out, and it's been loosely following the flow of the you look at the the way the laws are given, it's not one-to-one, it's not direct, but but there's a general flow of he's saying, here were the Ten Commandments, and that happened a few chapters ago, repeating them, and now the laws that come after this are all unpacking, unfolding, or giving flavor to what it looks like to keep those commandments in a society that is theocratic, meaning God is their king, that is uh, ethnic and nationally based, meaning it's an actual physical country, not a a spiritual people that transcends cultures like the New Covenant people, but it's actually located in a land with borders and that it is a country made up of priest, king, uh, and military. So there are laws having to do with priesthood and the kingship and the military. There are laws that have to do with the judges, and that's what we've looked at in previous chapters because it's going to be a law-based society. And so God's speaking into that, and in many ways Israel's laws, Israel's country represent, would be recognized by other ancient Near East peoples because it has a lot of the same structures, a lot of the same social concepts that are found in Assyria, Babylon, Egypt, whatever, are also found in Israel because it is an ancient Near East culture within and around other ancient Near East cultures. So in many ways, Israel's laws will reflect the cultures that they're around, but they will modify those cultures in a number of ways, pointing away from those cultures towards what we see unfold in the rest of the Bible, which is God's redemptive trajectory of history. He's wanting to redeem people out of the sinfulness of people, and he's going to do it by becoming a people, Israel, and then ultimately becoming a person, Jesus himself, and that person then will redeem, will rescue, will pull out all of humanity from where humanity is, which is fallen and turned from God. And all of that happened as we saw in the Genesis. So then Exodus begins this story of redemption of a particular nation that descended from a family, that descended from a man who God made a promise to, that his descendants would be the main means by which the world would be saved. All of that's everything from Genesis through where we are now. So now this people are seeing, okay, now you're going to live in this land. How are you going to live in this land? How are you going to live? And what's your life going to be like? So last week we ended where there was a um, the, the notion of capital punishment and the, the rights of, we got through, where did we get through last week? The, the, the battle, the images of battle last week and what would happen in warfare. So there, there would be ancient Near East warfare. Israel would be attacked. Israel would have to fight. Israel would go to war. Not all the time. God didn't give Israel a blank check when it came to battle. But he did say, when you do battle, and it is legit, here's how it's going to happen. And there were some peoples the peoples of Canaan, that they were to show no mercy to, that they were to thrust out of the land, drive out of the land, and utterly destroy any remnants of their society, because that was God's judgment on them, just as he had judged the earth in the flood generations before. Now then, we move into issues of things having to do with uh, like family life, social ethics, even capital punishment, even communal ethics. What kind of society is Israel? Be. one of the things that that Israel would struggle with is they, as a people of the ancient Near East, one of the practices of the ancient Near East that was widespread was marrying more than one person. Marriage was not done for love in the Bible primarily. Every now and then you'd get a love marriage, and it was intended to be that way from the beginning. Genesis presents it, and then the Song of Solomon actually harkens back to and longs for a marriage based on love. But in the reality of a fallen world, most marriages, and perpetuating the family. That's what marriage was for in the ancient world. Love and, and companionship and compatibility, that's great if it comes along with it. But the main purpose was security, providing for a future. That's just how marriage... And if you go to some parts, of many parts of the world today, that's still what marriage is seen as. It's very transactional. It's very matter-of-fact. There's, there's not a lot of um, you know rom-coms that dominate the markets in some countries. Love is about fighting your soulmate. No, no. No, marriage is two families coming together to continue and to, to bring into being a new aspect of their family. So marriage, family, sex could not be untied in the ancient Near East. It could not untangle marriage, family, and sex. They were all part of it. We are so far removed from that as a culture. We are so far removed that we look at these and we cannot relate to. It. Or we read in these laws, but we read in our current situation and then see these laws trying to be enacted in our current situation and go, well, how would that, that would never work? We don't realize that in the ancient Near East, normal house life was not the nuclear family. Mom, dad, 2.5 kids, a dog, and a fence. Normal house life in Israel was three to four generations in one dwelling in a little commune that, had the, that was presided over by the head of the household, the head of family. That was, that's just what it was. And so when you married, you did not marry and ride off into the sunset. You married and joined another family or you brought someone from another family into your family. That's how it worked. I, I'm only emphasizing that because in this chapter where we ended up last week, which is chapter 21, we're going to jump back in. And then chapter 22, you cannot disentangle. those things. So you have to, have to, have to, have to take away all of your concepts of being a normal American, 21st century, single, sex in the city, friend, Seinfeld, you know, all this kind of, I'm, I'm, a, you know, I'm a professional adult, I'm on my own, i none of that, none of that applies in this situation. So you have to put yourself back in the mindset of an agrarian, kinship-based, honor and shame culture. Only then can you start to understand the significance of these laws and what God puts forth. And you can also see both the fallenness of the culture into which God reaches, as well as the heights or the direction that he wants to take the people from that culture when you contrast his views, his
1: laws, with the
0: surrounding laws. This is a lot of work. It's the work of Old Testament ethics, but it's the work that needs to be done so we, so we avoid the common... Missing it or, or um, denigrating it as, as unsophisticated or barbaric or unenlightened or any of that nonsense, read it for what it is in its own setting first. Then we can ask, what does it mean for us today? So first, verse 15, we're back in chapter 21, finishing up verse 15, if, not when, but if, if a man has two wives, and he loves one but not the other, and both bear him sons, but the firstborn is the son of the wife that he does not love as much right so he's got two wives he's for whatever reason and and that was not normal by the way polygamy wasn't the norm it was a right of the privileged usually being able to afford being, marrying someone you had to you had to pay a bride price of marriage. Like, you didn't just say hey I love you I love you let's get married no no you had to go to the family and say I would like to bring your daughter into my family and because you're losing a daughter and the work that she can do and the, the, the contribution to your family, I'm going to pay you, you know, usually like something like 50 shekels, a certain amount, and that will, in, in compensation, for the person that you're losing in the work that they're doing for your family. Remember, herders, farmers, vineyard workers, okay? Don't think CEOs, don't think, you know, temp agency workers don't think secretaries, don't think any of these modern concepts. Your, your, your payment was for your work, not your worth, your work. And so you would pay, so if you married more than one wife, that meant you had enough money to go to more than one family and say, I would like to marry. It was common for those in the higher society, but usually the lower you didn't, one was all you could afford, literally, and yeah? metaphorically. So, if a man has two wives. So the situation is he's got two wives, but he really likes one. Think back. Who would this remind Israel of? Jacob. Remember, Israel's entire identity was based on the family of a man who had two wives, plus two concubines, and he loved one, but he didn't really love the other. And the one that he didn't really love, that was the firstborn. And the, ones, the sons of the ones he did love, they were at the end of the law. You know, think Joseph, think Benjamin. Right? This is all, this, this should take the reader back to Genesis. In other words, don't approach this as if it's a new thing. This is the story of Israel. And he's actually, there's a gentle rebuke in here of Israel's own story. But he goes on to say, if a man has two wives, he loves one but not the other. Both bear him sons, but the firstborn is the son of the wife he does not love. When he wills his properties to his sons, he must not give the rights of the firstborn to the son of the wife he loves in preference to his actual firstborn, the son of the wife he not. He must acknowledge the son of his unloved wife as the firstborn by giving him a double share of all he has. That son is the first sign of his father's strength. The right of the firstborn belongs to him. Just because dad doesn't like your mom doesn't mean that you get denied your right as the firstborn and your role to carry on the family name. This is how it was working. Now, that's what would happen in a, in a society that, where the husband was just well, I choose who I love and I'm going to make the rules. And you know, I, I, this is my technical but I'm kind of ashamed of him. To think back to Abraham, right? Think back to, um, to, to Hagar and Ishmael and then Isaac and, and how God said, no, no, I actually care for Ishmael. I've got a plan for Isaac. and It's not an exact parallel because Abraham didn't marry Hagar, but there's still this tendency, well, this is the wife I love, and now that she's had a kid, the others can just kind eh, of acknowledge it. Right? Everybody here that's had a deadbeat dad knows what it feels like to not be acknowledged be ashamed or to be not, you know, we all know of athletes who have kids all over the place and they don't even, you know, everybody's like, you look just like your dad. Well, we're talking about Why? He did not acknowledge it, Right? And so even within a society where polygamy, where family structure is already being disrupted through taking multiple wives, God's saying, hey, you're not going to do that. You're not going to go that way completely. There will be limits. There will be, there will be a, again, a trajectory towards what is the ultimate.
1: Not there yet.
0: Not at the ultimate ideal. Torah is temporary. It is contemporary until the coming of the one who embodies it. But it's for the, in the meantime, like Jesus said, because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses allows you to do certain things. And that's where we are. So, <clears throat> now it goes on. The opposite of a son who's loved, who's desired, who he wants to give everything to. It's the opposite. What about a son who grows up and who is openly rebellious? If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders at the gate of his town. This is the law court. The elders with the gate of the town is where judgments happen, Is where legal matters happen, Is where everything is like city hall. Okay, think of city hall. That's what the gate of the town represents. The elders of the town were basically the people in charge of the city. You think city, don't think Charlotte. Don't even think Rock Hill. Don't even think Gastonia. Don't even think Fort Mill. <laughs> city. Not even TKK. Not, not even Lake Wiley. No, city in Charlotte. Think neighborhood. Think village. Think encampment. Because that's about the size that we're looking at. A group of families living together in a region. You know, that's the city. A city surrounded by walls, surrounded by some type of delineation, and the families live inside. And it's, but don't think city concrete. Holdings, right? Think like a, a tribal group. And so this is how most things were settled at the tribal level. And he says that if he has a stubborn or son, they shall say to the elders, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a profligate and a drunkard. Then all the men of his town shall stone him to death. You must purge the evil from among you. All Israel will hear of it and be afraid. Now this is not, this is echoes of the honor of your father and Commandment, but this is not talking about naughty kids. This is not talking about a teenager who's backtalks. This is not talking about just someone misbehaving or not doing what I say. It tells you what the charges are. He's a profligate, He's a drunkard. Is this is someone who is openly rebelling against parental authority. No covenant stipulations. This is a son. A family wants to live in covenant with God. And tries to raise their son to be right. The son, as an adult, turns from that and says, no, I'm not obeying that. What, that is a direct affront to the authority of the husband, the mother, and the father, which is an affront to the authority of God. This is not a carte blanche for parents to say, well, you know, you don't do what I say, then I'll take you to the city gate and we'll have you killed. It didn't go that. This is talking about what the Bible would elsewhere call high-handed sin, rebellion, Open rebellion, open carousing, open flaunting of the very covenant identity of God's people. And so God, what was the, back in Exodus, as you are here with us, what was the punishment when you said, I'm not going to follow God, I'm high-handedly disobeying the covenant, what was the punishment? You were cut off. You were cut off from God's people. And so in some cases, like this one, when it's social in nature, when it's communal in nature, you're cut off. From the people, literally by the people, God invests in the elders the ability to say, If you choose to live in rebellion, you will suffer the consequence of rebellion. And as a community, we will remove you from the community when your parents can no longer do this. Presupposes that the parents have tried, that the parents are exasperated. It's again, it's not talking about teenagers, it's not talking about the occasional, you know, drunk party night. This is not this is a Lifestyle. This is an ongoing lifestyle that is a threat not just to the safety of the people, but to the covenant renown of the people of Israel, to their identity as God's people. And it's an honor and shame culture. The worst thing you can do is openly shame the family that you're living in. We don't really grasp that because we are not an honor and shame culture. We're not a family-based culture. We're an individualized culture. We're a liberty culture. So what we do, as long as I'm not hurting you, it doesn't matter. This presupposes, no, what you're doing is living in direct conflict, in, in direct disobedience to the entire way of life for us as people. And if you continue to do that and still live at home and are continuing to live in the community and take advantage of the community but not live by the community or as part of the community, God says, enough's enough. Now we don't ever know, nowhere in the Bible is this punishment ever said to have happened. Uh, You know, so for all we know, this legislation may have worked in terms of preventing, because all legislation is meant to prevent these abuses. So hopefully it worked. Hopefully there weren't cases that happened like this. But God's nevertheless saying, there is a time where enough is enough, and you will be punished. You will be cut off from the people that you're living, open rebellion against. And we look at that, and it's harsh, but it's part of what God legislated for his people in their physical existence as an ancient. And every other law of, by the way, you could do this. The father in most uh, heads of the household in most other cultures was a complete lord and authority over this family. You know, wife, sons, daughters. The, the father literally had the right to live or die uh, based on honor or shame or whatever. So Israel is—it's within that, but it's, its reserving that for particular things. Their only capital crimes in Israel were crimes against God or crimes that, that harmed the other person.
1: No capital punishment for things like theft,
0: right, or lying, or anything like that. It's for things that cause direct harm. And, and this, all of that implies that that's what's going on here. So don't think, naughty six-year-old, time to stone them. <laughs> it's not <laughs> like that. Um, there, beware of the caricature. You, you pop up on the skeptic website, an atheist website, all these biblesbarbaric.com type sites, and they'll pull these verses out. And they'll say, see, hey, I could do it by this. Next time your kid talks back to you, you're going to stone him? No, and neither would anybody in Israel. That's a stupid reading of this text that's intentionally setting it up as a straw man. So how about we talk about this like adults? And, and that way you can lead someone back into, or hopefully, the culture and the mindset of what's going on and not just the easy surface reading. But it goes on the last one. Since they've moved now into communal guilt and capital offense, capital punishment, someone who has been executed in the ancient world, You execute someone if it was a public crime and you wanted to be a public deterrent, you would not only execute them, but you would prevent them from a decent burial. You would ex you would display them publicly. You would shame them further, hanging their dead naked body up and letting it be eaten by wild animals. That's how you shame somebody in the ancient world. When death is not good enough, punishment. It's beyond that. So this is what God says. If a man guilty of a capital offense is put to death and his body is hung on a tree, hung up somewhere, you must not leave his body on the tree overnight. Be sure to bury him that same day because anyone who's hung on a tree is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. The idea of putting a body up on display, God, even within the context where that was the norm, God says, yeah, this is a cursed thing. This is a way of saying, hey, not only did this person Sin, but this person committed a heinous sin, and they are condemned under God's curse. And there is a desired deterrent that God wants to see happen, and that's what's the purpose of these laws in other ancient cultures. But there's a limit that God sets on, and if that limit is not overnight, you can, if you're going to display it, okay, display the capital punishment is a social thing intentionally, it should never be done behind closed doors. In the, in the Bible, it was never done behind closed doors. It was always done as a public communal thing and it was so that people would see it what if their kids watching yes that's part of what needs to happen they need to see what this is it's a serious thing and if you shrink back from that what does that tell you about how much you really support this thing called capital punishment So there's all kinds of stuff to wrestle with in there that again before we even ask how it applies today
1: just in the culture of the time we have
0: to understand that there was a public aspect to it, and there was a shaming But it was only for the most heinous of sins. And there was a limit to that shame. The person was taken down, and they were to be buried. This is why there was such a hurry to bury Jesus. He was executed and hung on a tree, right? The New Testament quotes this verse. And it was, ironically, as a sign of God's curse. And that's the whole irony of the cross is Jesus himself became sin for us, became cursed by God, so to speak, symbolically, so that he could take that curse. Himself, and then through his resurrection, taking and breaking the bonds of all of that curse and death and sin and shame forever. That's the beauty of the cross, and we can't fully understand it, well, we can never fully understand it, but we can't even begin to understand it unless we understand the shame of public execution. And so even within that though, God says, yes, but yes, but I'll allow this, but. That's the note, that's the, 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 the theme, the concept. Um, the attitude that we have of these laws. And so the point is, it ends it with, you must not desecrate the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. The land was desecrated by the Canaanites. The land, all the things that God's telling Israel not to do, so many of them were bound up with the practices that the people of that land, and even the surrounding lands, were doing. Remember Leviticus 18, think back to the holiness Code weren't here, I'm on the podcast, go back to the YouTube page, check it out. There's a reason that God is particularly prohibiting certain things, and it's so that Israel will not end up suffering the fate of the Canaanites for doing the things that the Canaanites did. So God does take culture, he does modify it, and he does point it towards something better, but that something better is never fully revealed in the Old Testament. That's why it's wrong to say, I saw a meme, somebody posted online the other day it said, Let's play a game. Turn to the Bible randomly to a passage in the Bible and do what it says and see if you end up in jail. And it was supposed to be pointed out like how brutal the Bible is and how it's a terrible guide for living and this and that. And, and it was such a you know, comment. I was like, this is such an infantile thing. Nobody reads the Bible this way. Who believes it? I mean, nobody who actually believes the Bible and understands it reads it this way. We don't read this as a timeless code for how we should live our life. If you do, you're reading it wrong. It's the story of how God has redeemed and is redeeming the world and the part we play in it, but we aren't in this part. We're living in a part much, much later. So what's the
1: purpose of this part? Because we're starting to see
0: the nature and the the, the mindset of God himself and how he relates to people in their cultures. So there's principles in all of these laws that even though the laws no longer apply, the laws no longer apply as laws. Principles within the law still teach us about, about who God is and what he wants for his people. We just got to do a little bit of extra work to get back into it, to understand. We're out of time. Next week, we're going to look at Deuteronomy 22. Now, Deuteronomy 22, I'll tell you, this is an NIV Bible. Most people doing this study use NIV. Some use King James. Some use New American Standard. doesn't really matter. NIV is a fine translation. Nothing wrong with it most of the time. Deuteronomy 22 is a great example where I think NIV blows it, and they actually put a reading that's not what the text says that actually gives the text a much worse feel than it should have.
1: Uh, so there's a big
0: case where I'll disagree with the esteemed translators here. But if you want to know about that, you're going to have to come back to find out. So have a great week and uh, we'll see you next time.